I'm John Sutras from the Word Balloon Podcast, and you're listening to the Atomic Podcast, where Ephraim blows up the news on a verbal scale. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast. And here is your host of the show, Efren Guzman. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast, coming to you live from Genoa City, Wisconsin, where I blow up the news on a verbal scale. I am your host, Efren Guzman. My guest today needs no introduction. Chicago-born, Chicago-bred. He's also the host of the Word Balloon Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Suntris. John, welcome to the Atomic Podcast, and how are you doing today? Efren, I'm doing good. So where is your city on the Wisconsin map? Um, Genoa City. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, where? Uh, northern, southern, central? Uh, northern. Western? Northern? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Have you been Have you been around? Well, this is, I'm more in the, in the boonies area, but um, have you been around this way? Not, you know, Green Bay is the uh, most exotic uh, part of Wisconsin <laughs> I've ever been in, as opposed to, like, you know, Milwaukee that's, you know, really close, and Kenosha that's really close. Yeah, so yeah. I just haven't had the reason to do it. I, I love going to Wisconsin. I am not one of those FIBs, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, but yeah, I. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really do. I appreciate Wisconsin. I just, I need cities, man. I don't know. I don't know how big uh, your city is and everything. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so not a wilderness guy. Yes. And I appreciate the Dells and I appreciate all the, you know, really nice, beautiful parts of Wisconsin. But I'm kind of like Chevy Chase in vacation in front of the Grand Cameron. <laughs> Popped my head for about ten minutes ago. All right, I'm good. Now what? Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you see that? You see that's because um I was a re- I originally moved here with my ex-wife and then I'm a transplant from New York, so like I'm a city boy. Yeah. So coming out here is like stranger in paradise. I had no idea sure. what's going on. I didn't know how to I didn't know how to drive. I don't know how to put shingles on a roof. I don't know how to fix a car. So it was like <laughs> I was so like not manly, manly as they would say in the Midwest. So it's. <laughs> You know, people here, like, you know, sh- hunt deer, you know, skin their own fish sure. and whatnot, yeah. you know. Oh, no, so, I know a lot of Wisconsin hunters. Absolutely, man. Yeah, so it's like a totally different lifestyle it- from <laughs> <laughs> New York City, if you get my drift. Because, you know, I'm used to, like, you know, calling, like, living in an apartment life, calling somebody if, the if like, you know, right. electricals down. You know, delivery is, is not uh, so alien. Yes. You know, or, or like getting an Uber really fast and, and things. Good Lord, I was in uh, I was in Illinois State's uh, town, uh, Bloomington, and Normal, and a friend came to visit me while I was there for the weekend. He said, like, I'll get an Uber. And it took like an hour for the Uber to show up, and it's like, yeah, that's not Chicago, man. So I get it. You see, that's the thing about New York. Like, if you go to New York, like, the, um, like yeah. everything is like a, you know, everything is pretty much a train stop and a bus stop away. Like, you, that's why you don't need a car for anything. Here, you nope. need a car. If you're in the boonies, you need a car for everything. You know? Absolutely, absolutely, man. man. Hilarious. Well, so tell me about you, John. Man, how was your upbringing like? How was your childhood like? Well, you know, grew up uh, just north of Chicago, one of the northern suburbs, and uh, my parents were fantastic and. Um, Graduated from uh, Nutria High School, and uh, really early on, I mean, I, I was just mesmerized by radio. And I really think, uh, especially like staying up late night in the summer and listening to late night radio, and it really was, um, uh, to a smaller scale, the internet of its time. Mm-hmm. Because you would listen to these 24-hour news channels, 
and they had up to you know up to the minute reports of this is what's happening right now around the world, and that fascinated me. And especially given that it was just this voice in the night rather than on camera stuff. And sadly, I'm old enough when I remember when TV stations would still sign off at midnight or 1 a.m. or whatever. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that really fascinated me. And so, really, from an early age, freshman year in high school, we were lucky enough to have a high school radio station. I immediately got involved. Uh, was just hooked, and it really was this like love affair of broadcasting on my part. And was fortunate enough then to go to Illinois State and do stuff at my high, at my college radio station. And then ultimately, about um, 30 or so years ago, I, I broke through the Chicago broadcasting market. I did break through uh, Bloomington, Illinois radio and, mm-hmm. and had, a, had a radio show for a while when I was still attending college, a pro job. And uh, then, yeah, I hooked up in, uh, in the early 90s and uh, spent a lot of time in sports talk radio, mm-hmm. eventually transitioned to making uh, commercials and doing voiceovers and character voices and things. And... Um, Really, uh, recently just uh, kind of wrapped up my broadcast side of my career uh, with uh, CBS. I've been on and off again with CBS for the 30 years I've been in Chicago radio. Wow. I was at WBBM, the news channel, and doing the last thing I would have expected to be doing uh, for the last couple of years, and that was live traffic reporting. But it was fun. I really thought it was going to be like, you know, I don't know if you know your Andy Griffith reruns, but like Howard Sprague describing his job. Now, oh, you know, actually, it's very interesting. You know, and it's like, yeah, sure it is. Excuse me, i got to talk to somebody else. But it was, you know, I mean, Chicago, 24-7 traffic. It's live news. It was sadly covering accidents and, unfortunately, gun shootings every now and then. I mean, that was part of the traffic reports, and they'd close off expressways and stuff. So I really felt like a reporter. And I have a love affair with comic books. So I really felt that was my, my Clark Kent journalism moment. Uh, doing of all things, you know, traffic reporting on this new station. Yeah, it's interesting because you really have you have a very eclectic career because, like, you know, you you're like ambidextrous. You, like, you could go from point ah. A to point B, from sports to traffic to comics to film to sci-fi. Like, it, it, like where you're at encapsulates and you know encapsulate encapsulates everything. Um, like, even when you was young, like you knew you wanted to be in, involved in broadcasting. Like, is that oh, something? Yeah. Wow. Like I said. Really, I mean, seventh grade, God, this is, like, ridiculous, but it's true. Okay. Uh, I was, the bicentennial year, the 200th birthday was, uh, for America was when I was in seventh grade. We had a big seventh grade play, mm-hmm. and I was the narrator. And it was very, you know, history and everything, and I don't know, I, I really felt like I was subconsciously channeling, watching newscasters and, and being very straight and, and you know, slow enough that they understood me and everything. Mm-hmm. And my teachers just went over the moon and were so nice to me. And just like, you know, you ought to be a broadcaster. So, I mean, I really <laughs> think that was my first inkling, even back in seventh grade. And I knew that our high school had uh, a 10-watt radio station. So I'm like, all right, I'm doing that. Yeah. And it just, I mean, great nerd uh, environment, clubhouse of other nerds, but, you know, great music as well at the time. This was... Very, you know, 1979 to 83 were my high school years, so beginnings of New Wave and Elvis Costello and even, you know, some punk and stuff. And it was like, this was really exciting for me. And, uh, you know, so, and I really thought I was going to be a music uh, DJ and get into music radio. And uh, I don't know, I took a side door along the way and suddenly found myself in sports. I'm a big boxing fan. Ooh, okay. And a lot of, a lot of major fighters 
were fighting in and around Chicago, including Wisconsin as well. Yeah. And uh, I managed to, between radio careers, because at first I was a music DJ, uh, I started writing uh, boxing articles for both Ring Magazine and Boxing Illustrated. Oh, wow. And that kind of was my way into Chicago radio, because a couple of the big sports talk stations would have me on as a local expert. And then um, the first all-talk sports radio station in Chicago, The Score, went on the air in 1992. And I lucked out, and I was able to get a job there within the first year. And, um, you know, I got to use all my skills because even then I was, you know, doing character voices and doing making silly parody songs. And, <laughs> no, you're right, man. I, I appreciate you saying, or, uh, being aware that I've done so many different things with my broadcast and podcasting career. And uh, really, man, I'll tell you, culminating in Word Balloon and uh, starting it in May of 2005, um, when I worked for Sporting News Radio, which Mm -hmm. became the Yahoo Sports Network. And Paul Allen, one of the Microsoft billionaires, alongside, you know, uh, geez, now I'm blanking. Uh, What's his face from Microsoft? Uh, Bill Bill, Bill Gates. Gates. He's one of Bill Gates' ground floor guys. Yeah. And made a ton of money. So he was a big sports fan, and he bought... Um, the Seattle Sonics at the time and um, basketball team or uh, the foot, I believe the football team as well. I know he had two franchises in Seattle. He also bought or he also created the science fiction museum there and he created Sporting News Radio. He bought the magazine, turned it into a, uh, a media network as well. Mm-hmm. And typical internet startup, um, he the, the people who ran his company that ran our company are like, hey, if you have any ideas, you know, we're always listening, so please, you know, run it up the flagpole, let us know, bring it up the chance, you know, we'll we'll take it up the chance, see if there's any interest. And um, they were having, at the Sci-Fi Museum, a weekend where they invited local comic artists to do, like, an art day for kids and show them how to draw and everything else. Yeah. And I said, you know, it'd be a great, I, so I emailed the, the contact, and I said, hey, you know, if you're interested, I would love to, for the museum's website, do audio uh, interviews with uh, sci-fi creators. And I think it would be really interesting and a nice draw for the museum. And you could focus them on exhibits at the museum, traveling or, you know, established exhibits. And the guy wrote back was really nice. He's like, you know, I really appreciate the offer, that what we're doing, but that's a really great idea. You should just do it yourself. Best thing I ever heard. Wow. And I, and I created Word Balloon in, in May of 2005, it, 17 years ago. I just celebrated my 17th anniversary on uh, May 10th. That's when I started the website. And uh, really didn't even start on iTunes right away. was posting MP3 audio interviews on my website and then going to the message boards of these uh, celebrities and creative people and saying, hey, you know, you really like uh, talking, you know, hearing from Brian Bendis. You love reading his comics and stuff. Well, I just did an interview with Brian Bendis. Here's the link at my website. And it worked. And I mean, really, Johnny Appleseed, one one listener at a time. Yeah. I, I slowly built my audience, and having a high high profile comic book people made the comic community aware of what I was doing. And uh, yeah, slowly but surely, man. I mean, now I I average no lie between a uh, hundred and two hundred thousand downloads of my entire library a month, and it's great. I keep getting new listeners all the time and new awareness. And also, my cachet in comics allowed me the opportunities to talk to TV and film people as well, and animation people, and novelists. And, I 
mean, good lord, I'm really uh, enjoying the kind of talk show I had always hoped to do uh, once I thought about really becoming a talk host rather than a music DJ. I'm living the dream, man, and, I, and I'm proud to say that I, I did it on my own. Yeah. And, you know, that's amazing to hear because, you know, you know, I'm, you know, everybody in there, you know, how people say everybody in their grandma has a podcast now nowadays. Uh, and, you know, there's people that focus like they have wrestling podcasts, uh, movie podcasts, uh, um, watch alongs, reviews. Um, what's your favorite part about doing a podcast? Is it um, interacting with people you admire from afar or is it just like getting insights from people on how they achieve their dreams and doing what they want to do? Like, what do you get? Like for podcasting, like is there a passion? Is there something you know how when people interview somebody, they're like they want to know like a certain part of them of how they got to point A to point B. When you interview somebody, what is it that you want to know about? Well, it's a combination of those things. I mean, good lord, when I do have uh, people I've admired for years. In fact, I was telling you off the air, I just had the opportunity of talking to Jonathan Frakes of Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, good Lord, that was amazing. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. Great conversation. Yeah, I know. Wow. And I mean, so there's that celebrity thing. But really, and I feel this way about all my guests, I'm very interested in the creative process. Mm. Um, I will argue with some of my friends who say, well, you just do interviews. That's not creative. I'll disagree. And uh, no, I, I, you know, I do. Th- and I do think there's a skill of being able to do a podcast well, and I hope that I've reached that. I'm, I'm always learning and, and trying to do better. But, um, no, I really think, and again, going back to what I was saying about what fascinated me about radio, the intimacy of audio podcasting and being inside somebody's head on their earbuds as they're listening yeah. or whatever, and having this really intense conversation. Terry Gross from National Public Radio's uh, Fresh Air is a big hero of mine in terms of how she conducts interviews and yeah it's a combination of the creative process and what got you there um you always learn about these guests and you find out facets of their um a personality and interests that the work doesn't necessarily reflect but might influence it in some way mm-hmm. or just be another cool thing and yeah. good lord kareem abdul jabbar huge nerd who the hell knew <laughs> And I, I saw him at San Diego the year before I interviewed him, yeah. and it was great. He had written a book about – he had done a fictional book uh, about Mycroft Holmes, Sherlock Holmes's brother in, in the Doyle story, Conan Doyle stories. And um, then he uh, – after writing his novel, he wrote uh, a graphic novel. And uh, Titan Comics let me know because they published it. And I said, I'd really love to talk to Kareem. And again, when I saw him in San Diego, he was talking about he read Heavy Metal Magazine when he was – playing for the Lakers and would bring heavy metal magazine in the locker room. And the players, some of the players would make fun of him for it, but he didn't care. And, and it was great. And really like right from the moment uh, we started talking, I'm like, Hey, I got to tell you, I got a few thousand listeners that are going to be so happy to learn that this hall of fame athlete is a nerd, just like the rest of us. And I could hear the smile in his voice. And he said, Hey man, we're the guys that have imagination. And women. But he's like, you know, he goes, this stuff, like, you know, this stuff sparked our imagination. He goes, we're the thinkers, man. And it's like, oh, that's so cool to hear from one of the jocks, you know? I yeah. Mean, good, I mean, and, and of course, uh, I, I, I was able to tell him this and I meant it. What a renaissance man Jabbar is because not only is he a great athlete, but he's a really serious thinker. And I don't know if you read his Hollywood uh, Reporter essays that he's written really since the culture wars of recent years 
And also now he's on Substack and just doing it there and continues to have interesting thoughts on what's happening in our culture, but also is very happy to let you know, hey, I just read Ed Brubaker's latest uh, Reckless graphic novel. It's amazing. Or, hey, Pearl is coming back from Brian Bendis and Michael Lark. You got to read it. And and it's awesome. And, you know, those guys have become good friends. And they're just like, I can't believe Kareem Abdul-Jabbar knows what we do and likes it. And I'm like, no, I get it, man. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, it, so th- so this great combinations and of, of that, but also like mentioning Brubaker and Bendis, yeah, getting inside their head and hearing how they how they tick and how they think. Yeah, it's it, it, it's you know it's amazing, especially like when you beat people, you admire them for far from afar, and then you realize like, wow, they kind of like the same interests that I like, and it's it, yep. it's amazing, you know, like hearing Joe Man- Manganiello talking about that he has a passion for Dungeons and Dragons and even Vin Diesel is like, wow, like you wouldn't you wouldn't think about that, you know, like yeah. you wouldn't associate it with that. It's just crazy. Absolutely, man, and also I mean I've been I've been very fortunate that a lot of these creators have then let me know, like Dan Slott, Bendis, Brubaker, others, hey, you know, they'll, they'll meet a fan who's also into, like, D&D. Yeah. And so when they get to meet him at the table, it's like, hey, man, I'm also into D&D. And so they have a nice conversation beyond the obvious. And, and obviously the creator is happy or the creative person is so happy to talk about this stuff because, like you said, they're fans too. So it's, uh, yeah, I really, I mean, it was never my intent to do this, but I, I certainly recognize that a nice byproduct of my show is to afford listeners the opportunity when they meet these people to go one step further and say, yeah, you know, I heard you on Word Balloon and La La La. And it was so funny, Brian Bendis and David Mack in their Image comic book, uh, or no, was it Image? Yeah, it was Image. Uh, cover, uh, which is about a spy who his cover is that he's a comic book artist. It's David Mack has done a lot of work for the State Department. Goodwill work. He's not a spy, mm-hmm. but yeah, but it, but they decided to extrapolate it further and make all right. What if David were a, were a uh, were spy? You know, uh, cartoonist by day, spy by night. And there's this great moment in the first issue of the magazine uh, of cover where a woman approaches the artist and says, "You know, I heard you recently on Word Balloon and blah blah blah." And I'm like, "You guys are amazing." I mean, it's my God, what a compliment. And and uh, I've had. Wonderful people like Stuart Immerman and um, Sarah. Oh God, one of the Ultimate Spider-Man artists, and now Pacelli, Sarah Pacelli, and uh, and Chris Somney draw me as Ultimate Spider-Man, Peter Parker's uh, Wow principal at his high school. <laughs> so there, are, I have cameos in comics. Are you kidding me? It's it's ridiculous. There's for a wow. long time the banner on my Twitter feed. It might still be there. Was me, uh, unfortunately, incredibly heavy in this drawing, uh, riding on Teenage Spider-Man's back, uh, avoiding an explosion, and Spider-Man telling me, you know, it might be a good idea to skip on the snow caps every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my family was very amazed. They're like, well, I guess your podcast is working. I'm like, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> And the thing is, you could afford to, like, this, this is a, a, a career that's afforded you the luxury of living life instead of working at a factory or working at, you know. I hear you, man. You know, which is nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, like, Not you know. You oh, ha- my God. Are you kidding yeah. me? Those are people who really do work for a living and sweat their balls off doing yeah. it. Yeah, that's. And, I mean, yeah. I felt that way back in my sports radio years when uh, we'd get callers and they'd be like, hey, man, I, uh, it's funny you mentioned roofing. Literally, I always remember this one guy going, 
And I'm out there roofing, you know, in the June and July hot sun. And listening to you guys talk sports is a way to, you know, get my mind off my terrible job. And I've gotten that sort of email and message and anecdote from people directly at conventions so many times. And it really means the world to me. I mean, that's that's the greatest compliment I could get is that, you know, I mean, nothing, as you know, nothing is stopping us from podcasting. Yeah, yeah. that's right, Chris. Uh, So, you know, it's a question of do you want to do it? And is it giving you what you want to get out of it? And, my God, that kind of affirmation from the audience is beyond gratifying. So, yeah, I'm very lucky. Yeah, because, like, you know, I moved from New York to the Midwest. I work at a factory myself. Like, I, where I do, I, be, I do, I, I work in CNC Composites. We do, like, the auto bodies for NASCAR. So, we, like, wow. you know. Yeah, so, it, you know, like, and working there, like, sometimes I work by myself. All I do is hear podcasts. All I do is sure. hear music. So, you know, and then I had that passion for doing podcasts, living in New York. And then me and a friend of mine used to do it together for fun. And then, you know, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not generating millions of listeners, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I have people out there that like my quality of work and it's also a passion of mine because i love for some reason i was always fascinated with the entertainment field like i always love sure. movies and whatnot sci-fi like I always walks to the beat of my own drum you know, like i you know i i have my own passion for like different things and you know i meet people here and there but midwest is kind of hard to meet people with your same passion but like there there's people out there that do like oh, yeah. you know dungeons and dragons comics or sci-fi and movies like i like i'm a huge star trek fan and it's hard (laughs) yeah hard to meet people like that around here but it is but that's the great thing about podcasting is suddenly without any you know support uh from a terrestrial broadcast company you're global yeah potentially global and Mm -hmm. that happened for me early on where my buddy D. Claymore was doing a book called uh, uh, a detective book set in the late fifties called Hawaiian Dick, and yeah. uh, his artist was based in Australia. Steve, and shame on me, I can't remember Steve's last name right now. But he heard my interview with Clay and mm-hmm. let his fans know, "Hey, you ought to listen to this. It's about our book." And all of a sudden, I had Australian listeners. And it's funny, I mentioned Dan Slot earlier. Yeah, he was in Australia, you know, in, in uh, Perth and in. Um, uh, the other big city right now, uh, Melbourne. Melbourne, and, okay. Uh, yeah, and he's like, God, I, you got work balloon listeners down here, man. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of already knew. Stephen Griffith, good, I'm glad I remember his name. Shame on me. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, man, no, I'm, I, I truly, I mean, and I'm, I'm uh, Greek-born, and I've got Greek fans in Greece, yeah. and, uh, you know, UK fans all over the UK, and uh, really, God, uh, it's amazing, my, my podcast network, will allow me to uh, look at a map and see where, you know, the various countries that my show, you know, has listeners. Yeah. And again, I've showed that to the family because the family's like, well, this is cute, but you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to stick with radio, aren't you? And this mm-hmm. was, you know, back in 2005. And I'm like, well, of course, but, you know, I'm, this is fun and I get to do what I want on Word Balloon rather than the job assigned to me. And at that mm-hmm. time, I was just making uh, commercials and doing voiceovers and wasn't really on the air reporting or hosting so i'm like yeah this is keeping me kind of fresh if i am able to get some sort of hosting opportunity never came in broadcasting but now 17 years later it's its own thing and um how uh the the reality is radio is trying to catch up with podcasting certainly talk radio is and they're getting it and they understand but i kind of laugh when they are oh you know well we've been in the podcasting since uh, 2015 or 2010 
And I'm like, yeah, sit down. I'm like, I was there in seven, you know, 17 years ago in 2005, a year after it started. So, you know, I'm not impressed. So. <laughs> <laughs> you see that? You see that? That's so true because, like, I think podcasting touches every every facet of every corner, and you know, the podcast could be it could lead to different topics. Right now, like, you see, like our our topics are deviating different. You know, from 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 radio broadcasting to podcasting to meeting certain people, and you know, like like for example, mine's too. Like I I have like fans in Australia and people like I would even know and meeting people like you know people say social media is like a detriment or it's 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 bad and whatnot, but it's good in some ways because I would never meet so many people from different parts of the world if I did you know without podcasting. So so true. You know, so true. It's no, amazing. It's it's what you decide to make of it. Yes, there's a toxic portion of social media. We've all seen it. We've all been aware of it for years. Really, I would even say, even before the culture worlds really exploded, there yeah. were moments in nerd culture that, again, I mean, good Lord, from Star Wars fans to Star Trek fans, I mean, <laughs> yes. and, and whether, yeah. whether I agree or disagree with whatever the frustration is, and also... It again on the negative side. It, it seems like oh man, there's a lot of people that don't like me or don't like this thing. But then you step back and it's like, no, that is such a small sliver of the pie of Star Wars fandom, Star Trek fandom, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, not that their points may or may not be valid, but it's like I, I'm still being discovered by potential podcast listeners, and that's great. Mm-hmm. And I take nothing for granted. And, you know, I never have a don't you know who I am mentality. Why would I? Good Lord. There are millions of podcasts. And we were, uh, all of us who started before 2010, were like, wow, a lot more people are joining in. And the, and the matter is, anyone can do a podcast. That's the best and worst thing about it. But then the other part is, but to make people stay and want to hear you more than once, you got to be good at this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... I, I welcome other podcasters who, uh, serve, you know, and also everybody's point of view is different. So yeah. I never feel threatened by air quotes competition. I don't consider them competition. I, I consider it, hey, we're all doing our same thing and just doing it in our own individual ways. Yeah, that's true because, you know, because you might think one way, somebody else might think another way, you know, like... Yes. There's yes. people who love new Star Trek and people who hate new Star Trek, you know, <laughs> like our like like our buddy, our the notorious RMB, you know, Robert Meyer Burnett. You know, there's people oh, yeah. who like Discovery, people who don't, you know. But that's you know, like they, that old saying, opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one, so everyone, <laughs> you know, everyone yes, has and, their opinion. And Rob, I love hearing Rob talk Star Trek, and I I would say I agree with him ninety percent of the time, and the other ten percent, it's not with any malice or anything. And I believe me, new Star Trek frustrates me. Although I will say I'm really enjoying strange new worlds. Even though I'm enjoying strange new worlds, there are still things that, uh, the current Star Trek writers in general feel it necessary to put in their stories, uh, personal trauma. Yes. Uh, and also I don't like the way they fuck with canon. I hope I can swear. Oh yeah. You can, can swear. You can say what you want. Okay. Yes. Well, yeah, because, Honestly, I believe that 95% of the complaints about new Star Trek would be solved if they would just say, okay, this is a soft reboot. There are going to be things in continuity that we're going to keep. 
and there are going to be things in continuity that we would like to explore a different way. Exactly. And if they had just been up front with us all at the beginning with that attitude, we would be fine. Even the audacious move of creating a female human sister for Mr. Spock, the character <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, yes. Be, yeah, it's beyond love. I mean, his, yeah. his whole backstory and Nimoy's performance is such a cornerstone. Mm -hmm. of Star Trek lore. How dare you? I don't mm -hmm. care if they made her Polish or, yeah. you know, white or Hispanic or any other ethnicity or diverse culture you want to throw in there or if you made it a straight-up white person. No. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm throwing the flag down. And and even uh, Cybok in, in Star Trek oh, V yes. was a little like, okay. Yeah. But they, they made fun of it in the movie. Yeah. I mean, I love when Kirk's like, you're lying. You're lying. I've known you for years. You never said you had a brother. You, you don't have a brother. And he's like, technically, you're right. I don't have a brother. I have a half-brother. Yeah. And, and, and Kirk goes, I got to sit down. And it's yeah. like, yeah, there you go, man. We all got to sit down. This is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. So, so if they had taken that attitude with New Star Trek, uh, all of these things, including Khan's descendants, oh, God. showing up on yes. Strange New Worlds, it's like, all right, show me why that matters. Sam Kirk showing up on New, New Star Trek. Show me why it matters that this character has to be X. I, I, I have a little less of a problem with Uhura and Chapel than I did when it was initially uh, introduced. I'm a big Dr. Mabenga fan. Oh, yeah. you see, now we've walked into he from my uh, my Star Trek uh, love. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, it's totally fine. Yep. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I love the fact that they brought back Dr. Mabenga. He's only in two original series episodes. They explained that he is on the Enterprise because he's a Vulcan medical specialist, and that's why he's there. So it kind of makes sense that, okay, fine, I'll yeah. accept that maybe he was there. The only thing I didn't like about it, and frankly, as I approach my late 50s, um, I'm a big Dr. Voice fan from The Cage and the two-part menagerie of the original series. Mm -hmm. And I think it was cool that Dr. Voice was even more of a mentor to Chris Pike than you would say about McCoy and Kirk. And mm -hmm. it does disappoint me. It, it would have been even more interesting if they had kept um, uh, kind of combined voice with uh, Babenga and made him an, an elderly uh, black uh, character. Because I, I, again, think there is there are possibilities. I love that Robert April is in the Pike show. Yeah. And again, there's an opportunity for that man to be a mentor to Captain Pike. So those are the good things. But... Um, yeah, like even little things like, oh, uh, La'an's uh, people, was a, I believe it was her, or maybe it was uh, uh, the Navigator's uh, thing, but, um, you know, oh, uh, my, my people were harassed by the Gorn. And it's like, all right, wait a minute. Like, the Gorn was still a mystery alien race in Arena, that original series episode. Yes. Wow. I, again, it's a little thing, but it's like, yes. it's it's unnecessary for you, why don't you either name a new race or a race mm -hmm. that we already knew about yeah. prior to their introduction? And it just feels either lazy, they don't care, or they're just not doing their homework and they don't care. Yeah, and, ask, and that really—I yeah. mean, as a, especially as someone who has literally loved Star Trek since I was five years old, and I'm 57 now, so you know, 50, 52 years of, or yeah, 52 years of Star Trek. You know, sorry, that kind of bugs. Me. Uh, let me offer you a counterpoint. Um, ah, or what was your thought? All right, what was your thought on Star Trek Enterprise? Did you feel that it was 
to like uh, um, aesthetically more pleasing than like you know how everything is supposed to connect to the original what was your thought of enterprise as a well not a reboot but as a prequel to yeah what was your thought about that and the settings and the ship like they look more futuristic than the actual because the 60s of course the cost and the and, and the graphics are different but what's your thoughts on that then you know a lot of the visual aesthetics i'm okay with and honestly i do think especially given that Rick Berman and Brandon Braga were still there Mm -hmm. and were so in tune with Roddenberry's philosophies. And really, Rick Berman does not get enough credit for maintaining the Roddenberry writing, not only standard, but kind of uh, guideline uh, boundaries. And it's like, no, Earth solved its cultural problems by the 22nd or 23rd century. So whatever, whatever it was timeline wise. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and enterprise set, you know, a hundred plus years before Kirk and, and, you know, 50 or 70 years after our time, it's like, all right, that's close enough to our time and far enough away from the original series that there's room to play. And in fact, as much as the Romulans were in enterprise, we know, you know, the, the, the ship kept their distance. Yeah. And, you know, so so even, you know, things like um, that that first Romulan episode, not right now, the name is escaping me. Uh, yeah, it's been a few it, years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I forget, but you know what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, Mark, yeah. Mark Lenard played uh, the Vulcan, or the, the Romulan captain, and, you know, at the end of the interview, at the end of the episode, in another time, I would have called you friend, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Um, they, they, they were very aware of that. Whereas now, it really is, like, I've yet to see the... Re- like, in fact, the most recent episode of, of Strange New Worlds, I appreciate that they are bringing up the eugenics federation mm-hmm. policy as something to debate. And I think they left things open enough that if they wanted to, be, you know, further, you know, down the line, still explore it. On the one hand, I'm okay with it. On the other hand, I'm not okay with it because, again... Um, I felt it made more sense in Deep Space Nine with Bashir, where it's like, okay, it's over 100 years since Khan appeared, mm-hmm. and, you know, several hundred years since the eugenics wars, uh, and, of course, Bashir's, you know, proving mm-hmm. loyalty and the various things he did. All right, special dispensation. It's been very interesting. I don't know if you're aware of Jesse Gender. No, I'm not. They are a terrific trans... Uh, Star Trek YouTuber who I don't always agree with but I appreciate their point of view and that said I was watching Jesse's review of this latest episode and this very uh, subject and they said that uh, they found it uh, almost like bigotry the Federation and Starfleet's attitude towards eugenics which I guess from and again I say this as a straight white guy but um, maybe uh, as a gay person or a trans person mm-hmm. or a person of color, they can see that as a level of bigotry of some sort. Mm. And I, I, I'll, I'll admit it never occurred to me that way, but I also can't forget that the idea of eugenics in the original idea of Khan came from the Nazi experimentation that was going on during World War II in uh, Operation Paperclip and other things, and also their attitudes about the Aryans, uh, Mm -hmm. the blonde, white, perfect people, that they are the superior race. 
So that is a really interesting thing to consider. And I hope that if they continue down this track uh, and, and explore it further, that they present that side of the argument as adamantly as they're presenting the bigotry side of the argument. And then you've got a very interesting thing, because I do think that's what Rick Byrne's Star Trek did, and of course Roddenberry's Star Trek, where they would present political ideas, but do them pretty even-handedly. And I do believe, and I say this as a bleeding-heart liberal, that um, New Star Trek is very much on the left. That's great, so am I. Um, but I do think sometimes they make moves like, even as much as I think Stacey Abrams is an American hero, and I have tremendous respect and love for her what, for what she's doing, mm-hmm. I do think that obviously she's a polarizing, political, active, yeah. polarizing, active political figure. You've got to put both of those adjectives on it, not just polarizing, but active, and that she's running for governor for Georgia and stuff, and I hope she wins. Yeah. But that's really like, there are people to the center or even to the right of those politics that love Star Trek. And I really think it is kind of a, well, fuck you, this is what we think. Yeah. And it's like, man, you know, like, I, I just don't think, I, 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 and also she's not a, she's not an actor. Mae Jemison, as you might remember, was on Next Generation, one of the shuttlecraft astronauts. Yeah. Great mm-hmm. honor. I know Stacey Abrams is a massive Star Trek fan. Hey, invite her to the set, take all the pictures you want, write a million PR articles about isn't this great? One of our great Americans is a Star Trek fan. We're so happy that she's with us. But to make her the president of Earth, it's like, all right, come on. Yeah, yeah. But that's me. That's just me. No, no, I, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Um, Speaking of something very minor, well, not minor, I don't think, like, what is your take on Strange New Worlds Enterprise and the look and the aesthetic and the inside? Like, what's your thought of that? Are, do you hate well, it that it's all updated? Just like JJ, they've decided to do this. And I think it would have been more clever to reverse engineer and give us the same aesthetic that those fan films of Star Trek Continues yes, yes. and uh, James Cawley's uh, series yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, you can do 60s Star Trek and make it look cool Yeah. and retro. And also, I agree with Rob Burnett when he says Star Trek is an alternate universe of the way things went here. Mm-hmm. So that's another way to explain that, you know, uh, tech will look different or whatever. But, um, so I'm a, I, I, that, that kind of visual stuff doesn't bother me. What did bother me was, and again, I, and forgive me, if you haven't, have you seen the third episode? No, no, I haven't, but it's okay. You can, you can, you can say it. Well, there's a plot point, and actually Discovery explored this as well this season, where, um, to help people through a, a bad patch of weather or whatever, they put people in the pattern buffer of the transporter mm-hmm. to have them survive. And I get it, and obviously they sta- they establish it in Next Generation. With Scotty, it's yeah. like, well, that's cheap, because that was Scotty's trick. Yep. <laughs> and, it, and it's like, no, that's why Scotty's the miracle worker, man. Yeah. If it just is like an... Op- and also, again, you've got this great iconic episode of both Jordy and Riker going... Wait a minute! This guy survived in a pattern buffer for seventy-five years. Can that? Can they do that? Yeah. Can, and whereas now, just now, you have to throw him in the pattern buffer. Now it's like, okay, yeah. you know, geez, I, way to take this. I mean, as opposed to creating something new and interesting, yeah. you know, that's what bothers me. Yeah. But, I, I, but all that said, the the main um, stripes of Strange New Worlds, the fact that it's episodic again, 
the fact that despite them needing to tell their trauma to everyone, it's like 12-step Star Trek. <laughs> How you doing? I'm new to the crew. Let me tell you about my dead parents. Let me yes. tell you about the tragedy in my life. Yes. Hey, you're in the military. Fuck you and do your job. Yeah. And, and at least this crew, and in fact, even number one in uh, the most recent episode, and this isn't spoiling in any way, hey, this is the situation. Everybody just needs to do their job. Yeah. Right. Right. Don't, don't like, with, with the clock running and our hearts pounding, go, oh, you know that Vulcan that I'm in love with doesn't seem to love me. This isn't seventh grade. This is this is military. Like, you are, on, again, I agree with Rob Burnett. You are on the edge of the galaxy where split-second decisions are crucial for survival. By all means, if you want to have an aside and during downtime conversation once in a while, that's fine. But good Lord, you can play trauma bingo with the laundry list of uh, sad sack stories all these idiots in New Trek are carrying. And that includes Strange New Worlds, which bums me out. But again, on balance, this is the best New Trek, new Star Trek show we've got. Yeah. I know, like, and it's the same thing with Star Wars too. Like, you know, I don't. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think nothing will like if Rick Berman is not running it. Like, everybody's gonna have their own take on it. Like, woke cancel culture, whatever you want to call it. Like, it's sure. gonna be different. It's never gonna be the same right. as the original. The way because like people, the showrunners now they're running it of what's going on in society now, but they're just incorporating it into a science fiction format. But like everything that's happening now with the whole wokeness and 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 you know like you know it, like everything they're doing now like the like the mcu like you know it, it's not being derogatory it's like all right female first and then the, a man takes takes the back door and not not to say like it was a men that well it was a men-led show but i think they're just trying to incorporate what society is now to the show now as opposed I, you know right like what do you I, think I, I hear what you're saying and and um i understand and i would say in certain projects that's certainly the case but i would say that marvel still has strong men alongside the strong women e and yeah yeah i mean captain captain marvel's gonna be a woman-ledged movie that's mm -hmm. fine uh you know uh same thing with black widow the same thing with uh miss marvel you know the show miss marvel coming up absolutely yeah. she hulk, she -Hulk show <laughs> yeah even though again mark ruffalo is going to be there so that's great to see yeah. but uh, so i'm okay with that Star Trek, and it didn't, and also another uh, compliment to Strange New Worlds versus um, Discovery. Mm -hmm. It didn't even occur to me until well after I saw the first new episode that someone said, you know, other than Spock and Pike, there are no other uh, men on the bridge. And I'm like, oh, okay, wow. whatever. They're all competent people that know how to do their jobs. If you give me a strong character, my epiphany with, hey, women are kick ass. And are, comp are are capable of uh, being the main character of a show goes back to Alias and Jennifer Garner. Yeah, and that was such a great kick-ass action show, and she was great. Was definitely a woman, and and good lord, her her fight scenes with Gina Torres mm -hmm. uh, were so epic in that first season, and it just continued that way. And it's like. God, I th and I and I was relieved. I'm like, all right, I'm not the you know knuckle dragon Neanderthal that I thought I was. And also, good friends of mine like Kelly Sue DeConnick, who really kind of rebooted this uh, Captain Marvel to be the character she is. And in fact, the film creators give Kelly uh, the the uh, co the the credit for doing it. 
I, I, I really look to her as uh, a feminist that I can talk to and be honest and say, okay, I don't get this. Why was this necessary? Going down to, and I love this, this is my favorite story about that, Ms. Mar- the original Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers, before she became Captain Marvel, had that kind of Supergirl-esque, blown-up, blonde hair, mm-hmm. was in a onesie and thigh-high leather, leather boots, and they certainly leaned into her being sexy. Mm-hmm. And I said, and and I said, hey, you know, and then uh, Kelly's version came out, Kelly Sue's version, and she's in the classic Captain Marvel costume, and they even cut her hair. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, you know, I like to pin up Miss Marvel. Am I an asshole? <laughs> and she said, uh, no. She said, but consider this: what if there's like a big superhero death, uh, presaging, of course, uh, Tony Stark in Avengers Endgame. Yeah. And everyone's at the funeral, and they're all in costume. And there's Miss Marvel in her onesie and thigh-high boots trying to look solemn. <laughs> and I started to laugh, and I said, I get it. Okay. <laughs> and it's, uh, all right, I'm fine. And also, she's like, hey, I like sexy women. You know, she's like, I'm all for sexy women. <laughs> and I'm like, that's great. So, again, I, I, I like talking and, and getting a different point of view from Kelly Sue. Uh, and like I said, Jesse Jenner, I really appreciate Because at first, I really was like, F you about what they were saying about the eugenics uh, debate in this episode, but hearing it from Jesse, a trans person and articulating that point of view, it's like, that is a very interesting and worthy debate. And I hope it plays out. And again, uh, God, uh, they, in comic books, they turned the original, uh, Green Lantern, Alan Scott as, uh, as a man who came out of the closet. And it's yeah. like, no, I'm gay. Yeah, that's and, right. That's you know, right. and at first I'm like, well, could he have just created a, a, a gay Green Lantern? But that's now, I really look forward to some 1940s or 50s set Justice Society stories where, God, not only is Green Lantern worried about his civilian identity, but what about the attitudes towards gay people and having to keep that secret as well, maybe even from certain teammates? That's very interesting. That is a very interesting story that I think is interesting to explore. Michael Shabon does it in Cavalier and Clay. Uh, I, you know, I, I again... I appreciate that because now you're doing something beyond, hey, we're here, get used to it. And I don't mean that in any negative way, but it's great to have representation, but there should be some weight underneath that of what else is there about this character beyond a trans person, a non-binary person, a gay character? Give me more backstory, and especially in Star Trek, uh, why are they in Starfleet? Because that's an elite force, and even more so to be on the flagship and it's like that's uh you know that should come with a huge responsibility and you've got to be the best of the best and i don't think there's time for us to hear about your sob story as much Mm -hmm. as they do Mm -hmm. that's true because like if they're if you're going to go back to the past like you know, they'll, they'll, there's some interpersonal conflicts in, like, the older episodes, but sure. basically they're all working together. Everyone is smart, and, you know, everyone has their own niche, you know, like, where they're figuring things out together. And, like, watching, like, something like Discovery, it's up to Michael Burnham to figure it out. Like, yes. you know, she's, like, the main lead. Like, she's the ultimate brain. Like, okay, yes. everybody else is incompetent, you know? that's what well, it's, it's a crew. It's a, I mean, yeah. good Lord. It's, I'm sorry, there's no I in team. Yeah, and I understand yes, yes. that the show that she is the lead character, but yeah. every other iteration of Star Trek has had lead characters, whether it's Catherine Janeway or Ben Sisko or Jean-Luc mm-hmm. Picard or whatever, but other crew members were always able to save yeah. the day yes. as well they should. 
because it's a team. And it was, and, a, yeah. and good lord, it took them three and a half seasons on Discovery to give the bridge crew something to do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and it's still not enough, in my opinion. But at least they're nudging closer to that direction. And I really do believe um, the the uh, fact that they don't have the viewership that they originally ha- or that they hope to have. And that there is a, I believe there is a good portion of long life uh, Star Trek fans that are like, I, I don't like the idea that Michael Burnham is the solution to everything, and <laughs> yeah, I resent yeah. that. And it's again, it's like it, for the fact that it, it took us three and a half years because I think finally in the fourth season they started using enough of the bridge crew's names to at least for us to know who the hell they are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my buddy, my buddy Mitch Halleck runs a convention in Connecticut. Called Terrificon. It's a great show, Ooh, and okay. he balance, he, it's more comic book heavy. But he has some celebrities, mm-hmm. and the talent bookers. I won't name names, but the people that are like, "Hey, do you want anybody from Star Trek Discovery?" And he's like, "Like who?" He's like, "Well, I represent a good portion of the bridge crew." Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. You know, they're really popular. Well, I got to tell you, I've been a Star Trek fan for fifty plus years, and I don't know these people's names, their characters' names, wow. and at least on even that. And hey, Next Gen got a lot of shit. It's first year. A lot of yep. shit. Yep. You're right. And, that's yep. a, and again, fine. They got to prove themselves. Well, mm-hmm. it's been six years now for Discovery in terms of actual years yeah. and four seasons. And they're still trying to get their shit together, in my opinion. Yeah. That's a problem. That's a big fuck. And you can say that about Enterprise, that I don't think it kicked in. I mean, I I still like Enterprise more than some people do. Yeah. Uh, I think the last season was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um. But again, I, in, in the case of Enterprise, you had a network saying, yeah, but the, the next generation template seems to work the best. We want more of that. And it's like, well, we just gave you that with Voyager. Yeah, yeah. but we want more. So, yeah. I mean, it's it, it was it was getting to be watered down, watered down, watered down. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I think the, know, the so close to the last, though, Enterprise got got bastardized because they had to throw in Jonathan Freaks and Marina Sirtis in there. I think is like that was a horrible ending. Like I get right. it, they were trying to rush it, but why do that? You know, it's just well, yeah, you're right. And yeah. uh, and again, I've heard Brandon Braga explain. Well, we thought that the entire franchise was going saying goodbye, and it was an opportunity for us to kind of wrap up the whole Rick Berman era yeah. in this way. Well, that was a misfire because that was an injustice to the Enterprise crew mm-hmm. who, you know, had enough fans and I think still do have enough fans that looks like, yeah, you kind of you, you kind of screwed us. But but who knows what kind of network notes they were getting? I mean, I don't know if you've read it, but Mark Altman co-wrote uh, these books called The 50-Year Mission. And it's this incredible oral history of Star Trek right up to the beginnings of Discovery's development. And they have these amazing interviews they did live, and even people who had passed away, including Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and the like, where you really got inside, and you really heard some behind-the-scenes stuff of, no, the network was pointing us this way, or the knob Vister being pregnant during Deep Space Nine with Alexander Sigdig's baby. Yeah. And it's like, wow, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew she was pregnant, but I didn't know that's who did it. And it's like, wow. You know, or that... Uh, Kate Mulgrew kind of resented Jerry Ryan for a long time until the last couple of years where they made peace and that's good. And I can't imagine the pressure poor Jerry Ryan was going through yeah. when she joined the show and, and the, tr- the treatment she got from people like uh, Kate Mulgrew. And I love Kate Mulgrew, but it's like, no, you really learned some interesting things. And sometimes it's the writer's fault. Sometimes it's the network's fault. I don't know. It seems like 
Hertzman and company are given free reign to do what they want. And in fact, in my conversation with Jonathan Brakes, he was telling me that Sherry Lansing, who was in charge of Paramount during the next gen years and the next gen movie years, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, she appreciated Star Trek, but she didn't understand what made it tick and what made it work. And I suspect certainly the case of when the previous guy who was running Viacom and CBS, Leslie, uh, Les Moonves, Les Moonves. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that he didn't understand Star Trek, but he left it to Kurtzman. And again, I just think you've got keepers that I appreciate. They want to tell their own stories and they want it to be modern and take a different spin. But I, I think you can do that, but still metaphorically color within the lines that Roddenberry and Berman established. And I kind of think you owe it because as we've seen by the response of Strange New Worlds, that's what we want. Mm-hmm. We want meat and potatoes. We want we appreciate new ideas and we want new ideas, but you know, color color within the lines. And I would say the same thing about Star Wars. Yeah. Well, speaking of Star Wars, then let's get into Star Wars. What are your thoughts yeah. on Star Wars and everything that's going on with the franchise now? I I hated the sequels. Um, I hated the disjointedness of the sequels, mm-hmm. and it's like, good lord, Marvel works for the same company and are right across the street. Why did you think it was a good idea to have such disjointed movies? I mean, I understand uh, the the guy that originally was going to do uh, Rise of Skywalker was kicked out, and they brought JJ back. Yeah. Uh, and but yeah, I, I just um, I didn't care for that. I think it was uh, how ignorant and truly ignorant uh, to not think at least in the very first film to have all three of the original stars together mm-hmm. and, and do something. And I'm sorry uh, to, to save Luke for that last scene was so stupid. Yeah. And also, well, or they could have done it and still had maybe Luke Han and, and Leia doing their own story while you were establishing Ray Poe Dameron and uh, John Boyega, who's Karen Finn. Uh, you know, their story, and have them on separate tracks. And it's like, no, that's fine. You know, there's enough rebellion going on that they may not be aware of what each other are doing. Um, and so so the movies annoy the hell out of me. Thank God Dave Filoni showing his chops on the animated side and John Favreau being uh, just as much of a Star Wars fan as he is a Marvel fan. Mm-hmm. And those guys doing what they've done, I think, with Star Wars television. I like them. I have, I have not, I've had no complaints about The Mandalorian or Boba Fett. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, Obi- the Obi-Wan show. Uh, I think they're doing it right. Yeah. I don't know if you read the leaks to the Obi-Wan show, but if, if those leaks are true, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I. you know, I'm, I'm casually aware. I like to experience the stories firsthand. I mean, the amount of Justice League, pre-hype and pre-story that we got before even the Joss Whedon version came out. I'm just like, fuck you people. I I get the, (laughs) well, I get the curiosity and I understand all that, but it's like, can I, I like opening my presents on December 25th. Yeah. I don't, I, I, and it's so funny because I just had, and again, I don't mean to keep name dropping, but I just had Jeff Johns on my show. And, And Jeff has been a good friend for a good portion of those 17 years. And especially when he was just doing comics, He'd be so excited about a story that was just getting started. Go, you want to know how it finishes? And I'm like, no, man. I'm like, I know that's six months away. I know you're excited, but no, man, I want to read it for myself. I want to experience the story. 
So yeah, I don't know. I'm old fashioned that way. Wow, that's the. <laughs> That's like if Wait. somebody's offering you to, you want my keys to drive the Lamborghini. You're like, no, I'll just watch you drive it. <laughs> you yeah, know? I'm happy to be a passenger. Exactly. Yeah. I, uh, the, the Bond film Skyfall, I remember um, the, the Friday Skyfall open, USA Today spoiled that M. Dots in the movie. Mm. And it's the first fucking day. And it's, good morning, here's your morning newspaper. Guess what? M dies in the new James Bond movie. Yeah. And it's like, come on, man, fuck you. What are you doing? <laughs> but okay, whatever. I mean, they. I understand. I've certainly had enough conversations with industry people that they're like, well, you know, the thought is, we spoil a little. That's going to increase interest in the story and stuff. And again, new. Ch- they're not. You know, I'm. I'm an old. I'm an old nerd. I've got one foot in the grave, as Rob says. Yeah. More so than Rob does, because I got a good. I think five years on as far as our ages. And stuff. Yeah. That's fine. It's totally fine. I get it. I mean, new new audience. I'm I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm along for the ride. Yeah. Uh, they will be they will be shaking their fists and yelling at clouds forty years from now, just like I am now. <laughs> like Charleston Heston in the last scene of Planet of the Apes. Yes. Damn you! <laughs> exactly, man. No, I I was saying Abe Simpson. That's like my favorite, like Springfield News. Headline: Old man yells at cloud, <laughs> and it's a picture of Abe Simpson with his fist in the air, yelling about something. Well, wow, you should make a shirt out of that. That's pretty cool. Oh, it's a meme. Oh, yeah. dude, it's a meme. <laughs> it's it's all. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Just put Simpson newspaper, and I'm sure that's gonna pop up. Oh, so, yeah. Well, yeah. oh, John, quick, um, quick question about you. What's your favorite? Sure. What's your favorite food? Oh, I, you know, I grew up. Uh, my dad uh, had an Italian restaurant, so I love Italian food. Uh, I love um, I love to cook. I mean, just simple stuff. I like making chili. I like making pulled pork. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, so yeah, I, I enjoy cooking. And I've gotten much better in terms of uh, eating better and, and appreciating vegetables more than I did maybe when I was a little kid. But uh, but that said, yeah, I, in fact, I'm looking at my salad right now that I, uh, when we're done talking, I'll be eating. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I... Uh, so yeah, I, no. If there's if there's an ethnic food, it certainly is Italian food. But truly, love Indian food. Love uh, love Greek food. Grew up on Greek food. I'm a Greek guy. Um, Chinese food. I'm a big fan of Asian food in general. Uh, yeah, Mexican oh. food. Oh, how about this? Favorite pizza: Chicago deep dish or New York um, slice? Well, Winston Churchill and be the great diplomat and say, uh, I really appreciate New York pizza. I think it's terrific. <laughs> yeah. That said, what I appreciate about Chicago is you get more variety of pizza uh, mm-hmm. with us. Because my dad had a pizzeria going back to the early 1950s. And he did traditional, uh, not as thick as uh, New York uh, crust, thin crust pizza. Thin, traditional thin crust pizza. So I grew up on that. And uh, as I got older, oh, we got to go to, you know, uh, Lou Malnati's and Sue and... Uh, Uno and Duo uh, in Chicago because they were like doing uh, stuffed pizza and pan pizza and stuff like that. Um, and even I'll I'll admit I appreciate the uniqueness of things like the California Pizza Kitchen where you can put anything on a pizza. So I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, coming from Chicago, no, I do think we have great pizza. And again, you can get New York style pizza in Chicago. Although I agree when it like when it comes to bagels, then I think it's the same case for pizza dough. There is something about that East River water yes. that really does make a difference in the bread. It really does. 
Mm-hmm. That's true. Even the seafood. The seafood in the city is so different from the seafood out here. So different. Yeah, yeah, I would go I would agree with that, but I do think we're a great uh, food city. Yeah. And you know, I do I do think that we do just fine. I mean New York is listen, man. New York is New York. They've been doing it longer and and I think they have uh, a little head head start over every other major city. Mm-hmm. But I do think that Chicago was right behind New York. In fact, the great writer A.J. Liebling is the man, a New York writer that uh, dubbed New, uh, Chicago the second city. Yeah. And we wear it as the badge of honor. We really do. And and I, you know, I don't know how many years you've been in Wisconsin, but um, we're all. I mean, especially as older people, like every city had its own culture prior to us being connected through air, airline travel and. Uh, and uh, broadcasting and, and that stuff. So uh, I really do think, especially the older cities like Philadelphia and Chicago, to give two immediate examples, but also L.A. and San Francisco, we all evolved on our own prior to the country being connected. And there are still things about that that make us unique. And number one in the various disciplines that we do, both food and other you know examples of culture. Yeah. Um. One more thing about food. Um. Sure. Ch- Chicago style hot dog or New York? Again, I love <laughs> the red bell, uh, relish and yeah. like the street dogs and stuff of New York. I think they're fantastic. And Ray's, all or not Ray's, uh, papaya. Yeah. Uh, you know, racist pizza, of course. Um. But I don't know, man. I, again, uh, Vienna. I mean. God damn, go back to, uh, you know, 200 years ago, or, or no, 100 years ago, Upton Sinclair, unfortunately, writing about the jungle and the meatpacking uh, world of Chicago. I mean, Chicago was known, especially in its more agrarian years, as the hog butcher of the, of the world, if not just the country, and the stockyards. So we've had prime, you know, meats and, and things like that uh, in Chicago, as much as uh, I would say New York. So... You know, again, I, 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 there I do think it's one and one A, and it's up to you who's one A and who's one. But I, I think Chicago steaks are, and Chicago beef is very much on par with New York. Oh, really? Oh, yes. wow. wow. Yes. Oh, no, we, we age beef just like, just like New York does. I yeah. mean, that's the thing. It's like every, every butcher trick that old school New York does, Chicago doesn't. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's and, true. And as, for dec- and as for decades, if not a century. Okay. So, yeah. Let, let me pose this question because I haven't found one. Have you? <laughs> is there a good besides the Cheesecake Factory? Is there a good cheesecake spot in New York? Because to me, Junior's is and Baby Watson's cheesecake. It's so delish. Is there any good cheesecake spots in like Wisconsin? Well, Chicago, I guess. Oh sure, Eli's. Eli's, Eli's is a great local brand, hundred percent. And again, man, you're right. Good Lord, I love New York cheesecake, and uh, you know, uh, I mean, my my dear departed friend Bert Sugar. Who was my boxing publisher? Oh wow, virtually yes, right. Oh, great friend, truly. I, I, man, it's been almost ten years now. I miss him so much. Uh, and truly, a, one of my mentors. Uh, he really like clued me in on what you know, like Lindy's, and you know, I forget what other cheesecakes I've had in New York and stuff. But uh, no, I mean, I, I get it. I mean, New York cheesecake is really, really top notch. But I would say that I think maybe because I had it first. But I do appreciate Eli's in particular for a local Chicago brand. Ooh, where how far? How, where, where is Eli? Is basically in the hub. Well, they, of the city, uh, right? they have. They're, they're, you know, you can find them. They're, they're like franchised enough that, much like Belmonte's Pizza, that uh, 
that you could likely get them in supermarkets and oh, okay. things. But and, and I I don't know if there's still an Eli's Bakery or not. That's a good question. But I mean, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, but but again, no, New York cheesecake is really that's 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 really the best. Yeah. Oh. Um, John and. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for Mr. John Suntress? What is next? Well, you know, I mean, we're balloon is chugging along as far as uh, our my interviews and stuff, but I would like to explore other facets of doing podcasts. I would like to eventually do a dramatization of some sort. I'd like to do um, documentaries. In fact, I'm working on a monkey's history documentary. Oh, wow. Uh, and doing interviews very focused towards that. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Um, and I've been very lucky with both the living people that I've gotten to talk to about it and also some great archival interviews with all four monkeys. Because, uh, unfortunately, all we have left is uh, poor Mickey. who yeah. lost Mike Nesmith last year. But we have great interviews. Me and my uh, co-producer, Jeff Marcus, we have great interviews from all four monkeys that are very candid. People are going to be surprised because they didn't hold back and were very unfiltered with their opinions and just how they were looked at. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, how they were looked at by the rock industry and stuff. It's it's going to be a great thing. So yeah, that, and I really would like to do a scripted uh, podcast. So. Oh, wow. Interesting. Interesting. And the monkeys, wow. I haven't seen the monkeys since Nick at night. Hey, you know, like they used to get the reruns all the time. Wow. So yeah, I just, I, I, I really... I grew up a Monkees fan, uh, was watching the first run of the reruns, much like Star Trek, when I was a little kid back yeah. in the 70s, and really always appreciated them as a bubblegum band. And then I got to know their later music, and it's unfortunate that the music critic uh, community turned their noses up at the Monkees. It's kind of stupid, because every band was doing the same thing in terms of what we heard on the albums was not them playing their own instruments. The Beach Boys used session musicians, every band of the 60s and 70s, and every major act. Like, do you think Sinatra had his own combo that would follow him? It was like, no, they'd get the best studio musicians. I mean, when he went on tour, he would have to assemble a band. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And um, and so, and, and really, their uh, their movie head is very, I think, misunderstood. And, and fairly so, because it has no plot. But it's really a very ambitious movie. And their music just became incredibly amb- ambitious during and after this, the TV show. And, uh, yeah, it didn't click with the bubblegum kids who loved them so much. And, again, the, the music intelligentsia of the critics kind of turned their nose against them. They should be in the, of course they should be in the Hall of Fame. And, and really, their revenge, and it's going was that 2015 Rhino album they made called Good Times, mm-hmm. where... The writers from Death Cab for Cutie and Fountains of Wayne and XTC and uh, Noel Gallagher and Paul Weller and all these amazing modern pop artists wrote original songs for them. And there's a lot of really good music on that album. And it really was like, yeah, fuck you. Uh, bad news. We're actually talented musicians. Give us the right material and watch us go. And and, and, I, and just the way their careers went. I have a lot of respect for them. Uh, that's, yeah, yeah, they're... You know, there's people, like, good and bad, but, like, you know, they're very entertaining. Like, I know people today probably wouldn't even dare watch it, but, you know, if you grew up at that time, like, they were right up there, you know. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, they were doing, uh, which led to what they did on camera, mm-hmm. but they were doing comedy improvisation. Mm-hmm. They were being trained 
by their director, James Frawley, oh. who was one of the original Second City sketch comedians from the 1950s and 60s. So, like, again, it's like, you know, if you, if you get beyond the surface and really examine how that television show was made, the producers, Schneider and Rafelson, went on to make some of the most important movies of the early 70s, like Easy Rider and Last Picture Show to name two. I mean, these guys were really great, ambitious, young producers who had a vision. And you can't just call uh, the monkeys those four guys. Mm -hmm. It's also Schneider and Rafelson. It is James Frawley. It's all those great brill-building songwriters and the session musicians of the Wrecking Crew and the like. All The entire totality of the monkey phenomenon is really this group effort beyond the four guys and should be recognized for that and all the different things they did in the sixties and beyond. And I, and truly, I mean, listen, even Dolly Parton herself, they're like, Hey, we're putting Dolly Parton in the rock hall of fame. And Dolly Parton's like, I don't know how to break it to you, but I'm a country singer. Yeah. I mean, I, and she's such a class woman. Yeah. She's like, I appreciate it, but I don't think I'm really a rock and roll hall of fame yeah. person, but that's just me. Yeah. And of course they're still doing it. Yeah. Fine, whatever. I know. And I appreciate Thank her you. for being blunt that way and say, Hey, you know, I'm honored, but yeah. I don't think I deserve this, you know? Right. And I mean, that's, but again, that's the thing. And then to not put the monkeys in because, oh, they're the pre top four. Yeah. They didn't play their own instruments or write their own songs mm -hmm. on a lot of their big hits. Well, fuck you. You can say that about a million bands in the 60s and 70s and, and even prior to that. So it's like, I, I don't, good Lord, all those boy singers of the early 60s, like Fabian and Frankie Avalon, yeah. and they're not in the Hall of Fame yet either, but it's like, that's how they made pop music. I mean, it's just, it, it really, it, it knowing the full history of rock and roll, it, you really got to tell those critics, yeah, yeah, maybe take the stick out of your ass and reassess, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, John, um, what would you want? What would you like to be remembered for? Oh, that's uh, geez. I, I, you know, something I don't know. <laughs> um, I had a health scare earlier this year, but I'm fine. Everything's good right now. Oh, really? And, again, I, and you'll forgive me, but also it occurred to me because Illinois State honored me uh, for my podcast uh, and gave me, you know, like a, a broadcast Hall of Fame thing down at school, which was incredibly oh, nice. Congratulations! With, with, wow. Thank you. With eight other people, it was really great. But it is like. All right, you know, 60's not that far away. I'm like, am I? Should I start thinking about am I done? I'm not done. I mean, I'm still going. But I mean, yeah, I, I honestly, as you said, I think the diverse nature of my career, I do think that I made in Chicago um, minor, but I would say with with some, uh, you'll forgive me for bragging a little bit, some contributions to the sound of Chicago sports radio in its infancy. And just the various different things I've been able to do. But mostly, I'm proud of Word Balloon. I mean, I, again, it's the talk show I always wanted. I think it is unique, the way that I do interviews. And I think it provides people, uh, uh, both the guest and the listener, a comfortable uh, format to just hang out. And we get to know them on a personal level, the guests, as well as, again, the creative process and, and go through their greatest hits with them and stuff. So, yeah, honestly, I guess I'd say Word Balloon at the end of the day. Okay, and my final question for you, John, is what would the John of today would have told the John of yesterday? Don't worry. Don't worry, it's going to work out. Because, really, um, a good portion of my broadcast career was hanging by nails. Uh, gee, I hope this program director likes me. Mm. Uh, God, one of my last broadcast jobs, they had me shitting bricks for two years, feeling like I was on the chopping block. 
and I resent that so much that literally I, I don't hold a lot of grudges, but there's a, there's a couple radio executives here in Chicago that if I were in a dark alley with them, they, they might have they might come out of the alley with a couple black eyes and bloody noses. <laughs> oh, I won't deny it. Well, it really was. And again, it was nothing personal. It's just the way they conducted business and they weren't honest. And uh, so I really did spend a good, I'm shrugging right now, uh, I, I would say a, a good portion of the last, 10 years of my radio career, like, is this going to work? Is it not going to work? Am I going to have to find a different kind of job? And thankfully, Word Balloon has worked out. And it's like, no, I could be in control of my own destiny. So, yeah, I would tell that person, just relax. Everything, you know, just stick with what you love and and focus more on the podcast. Maybe if I had put even more effort in it, I mean, it was hard to do balancing a full-time job, as I'm sure you understand as well. You know, but yeah, I'm like, maybe if I put in even more effort and... Uh, was a little smarter and a, a little, you know, again, I, I regret nothing. But, yeah, maybe maybe it would have been even bigger by now. But yeah. it's doing fine. I always say I'm not a I'm not a 1% podcaster like name your favorite celebrity like Conan O'Brien and stuff or, yeah. you know, any any comedian or, or celebrity that has their own podcast and stuff. I'm not a 1%er, but I am a 10%er. And that's like I got a significant audience. And thankfully I'm, make, I'm able to make enough of an income that I can live off it and call my own hours and, and really like go beyond what I initially wanted to do with word balloon and explore these other facets of podcasting. Oh, amazing. Um, do you have like a favorite quote that gets you by the day or a quote that stuck by you that you like you use in your life? Like, all right, I remember this quote and I got to keep going with that. Sure. No, uh, you know, uh, Jesse Owens is a great Olympic sprinter of the, uh, of uh, the 1936 Olympics. Uh, he said it and I agree. Run your own race. Don't worry about the guy in the next lane. I have many broadcast friends who were starting out when I did. I'll name some names. My my dear friend Mike Greenberg from ESPN Sports. Uh, we were both brand new kids uh, in 1992, cutting our teeth at the score. That guy is all-star and has had so many great opportunities with his career. My dear friend Jesse Rogers uh, here in Chicago is – the, the top Chicago baseball reporter, mm-hmm. and my friend Judd Surratt, who uh, is the voice of the Boston Bruins on radio. Yeah. I, I love those guys, and they are kicking ass in broadcasting and have come so far in the 30 years that I've known them. And uh, I'm doing my own thing, and I'm okay with that. And I, and, I, and I am proud of their accomplishments, but I am proud of my accomplishments as well. Awesome. John, um, promote your website, your social media, everything you got going on. Sure. Wordballoon.com. Uh, you can find my video and uh, my audio there. Uh, I do my audio through the Spreaker, Spreaker. podcast network, but okay. it's available on all podcast channels. Um, uh, on Twitter, I'm at John Wordballoon. And on, under Facebook, I'm under my name, John Suntress, and... Also, for a couple other pages on Facebook, Word Balloon Podcast. Um, yeah, I, I, and you know, I'm on uh, Instagram. I'm on Word Balloon. I, you know, for the longest time, I'm like, I shouldn't be on TikTok. Nobody wants to hear from creepy <laughs> grandpa with his bullshit. But then I'm like, well, no. But I, what I can do is highlight my guests and put a minute of their content with me up, and and just have them on camera and be like. Hey, if you want to hear more of this great interview, check out my YouTube, check out my audio. Uh, so I haven't done it yet, but I will eventually get on TikTok. I don't know if Word Balloon is taken yet or not. But, uh, 
Yeah, and I mean, I try, I tried Twitch, and I'm like, all right, Twitch is a young man's game. That's all right. You know, and nobody needs to see me in a in a wading pool in a bathing suit, uh, like some of the girls on Twitch and stuff that I've come across. Not that I would know. I would never. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, Twitch is, and again, it's a gamer thing. That's cool. But yeah, at first I was really, nah, I don't need TikTok. But uh, and this is a suggestion both to you and other podcasters that might be listening. It's really important to do micro content as much as it is your full fledged thing. And I am disorganized and slow doing it myself, but I would I would recommend that you do that. So yes, look for look for me soon on TikTok as well. Not oh, me, but my guests. Yeah. <laughs> John, you've been a pleasure to talk to. I hope I can get you back on again. And um wow, man, hopefully we can meet up sometime and get some food and um God bless and take it easy, my brother. Thanks, Steve. No, I hope uh, maybe I'll see you at one of these uh, Chicago conventions coming up or, uh, no, at some point. But, no, I'd be happy to come back. We've had a nice conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, everybody out there. And I hope everybody was intellectually stimulated by way of mobile devices. Have a good one, folks.